We turn to Daniel chapter 3 in our journey through this book. The trials of life, the fiery trials of life. I want to begin reading at verse 13 and read through verse 18 in Daniel chapter 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are words that you have given by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit for our instruction today. And I pray, Lord, that you would guide us into your truth. We believe, Lord, that your word is everlasting truth. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, would be pleasing in your sight this day. Lord, use this word to challenge and strengthen and encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. We are learning that it wasn't easy to serve God in Babylon. In each of the first three chapters of Daniel, Daniel and his friends are faced with some very significant tests. In chapter 1, the attempt was made to indoctrinate Daniel and his friends into the thinking and the living of the Babylonians. And that included the eating of unclean food that had likely been sacrificed to idols, and yet in spite of that, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. In chapter 2, Daniel and his friends faced what one author describes as an occupational hazard. They were threatened with death if they, if they and the rest of the wise men couldn't interpret the dream that the king had. And you remember how Daniel appealed to the Lord and the Lord gave him the answer to that dream and their lives were, were spared. In this third chapter, Daniel and his friends face probably the most challenging test of their lives, at least up to this point. They were ordered to bow down and worship a 90 foot by 9 golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Kind of interesting, in the previous chapter, in the dream, he was the head of gold, must have gone to his head, and so he constructs this, can you imagine that, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, you bow down and worship this image, and if you don't, you'll be cast into a blazing furnace of fire. These three men faced this trial, 
knowing that God is able to deliver them, but even if he does not, they were not going to bow down and worship that image. There are three lessons we learn this morning from this text about God's ministry to us in the midst of fiery trials. First of all, we face fiery trials with the assurance that God is able to deliver us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced a tremendous amount of pressure to bow down to this golden image. Think of the place where they now lived. They were not in the cozy confines of of the land of Israel. They were in Babylon, far away from home, far away from family, far away from the temple, far away from everything that they grew up in, everything that was precious to them. Think of that pressure. Think of college students as they leave our homes and they're off somewhere in a secular university under secular professors, away from their congregation, away from their family. There is pressure to compromise there. And that's what it was like for these men. Think also of the positions that they held. Although they were young men in a strange land, they really weren't your typical foreigners. They had very high positions within the kingdom. The last verse of chapter, uh, last two verses of chapter uh, two, uh, Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon. So here they were in a position of leadership. Then you have the king saying, okay, here's what we're all going to do. How would that look? Couldn't even get his own leaders to bow down. There was that pressure upon these three men. How about peer pressure? Everyone else was doing it, and that indeed was the case. Verse 2, the Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble. And look at the list. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province came to the dedication that the king had set up. So every person who had any position of leadership in the kingdom was there, and we are told that they all obeyed the command of the king. And you add to that the pressure of being thrown into a fiery furnace. I'll tell you what. These guys were facing a very challenging test of faith. Can you imagine what it would be like to be thrown into a fiery furnace and be literally burned to death? This isn't just a story. This is exactly what happened. And if you and I were faced with that, with that kind of pressure, all I can say is, oh God, you have to help me. I would, in my own flesh, in my own human strength, I'd want to run or at least bow down. So you think of what they went through, very significant pressure. And I think they could have come up with several excuses. They could have rationalized why it would be just okay to just bow down. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary on Daniel, offers some excuses they could have given. He says they might have reasoned that they must hold on to their government posts 
at all costs because exiled Judah needed friends in high places. Who knows what might come on their own people if pagan scoundrels filled their positions. He says, or they might have appealed to the official versus personal argument as gobs of politicians do. They could engage in this moment of silence before Nebuchadnezzar's golden mummy on its feet, but it would only be an empty ritual. They wouldn't mean it. It would simply be something that their employment demanded of them. They would do it in their official capacity, even though personally they were opposed to it. Can you imagine that? Oh, yeah, I'm not really doing this in my heart. I'm just doing it because it's my job. I'm really opposed to this, but I'll just do it in my official capacity, but not, not personally. Rodney Stortz mentions some other possible excuses. Some might make a case for situation ethics. In this situation, it would be all right to bow down because they would get killed if they did not. Certainly, God would not want these three young men to die, would he? Others would argue in terms of culture, he says. The Babylonians are not going to understand the laws of our God. We don't want to offend our culture and ruin our witness. We will bow down now so that they will listen to us later. Anyway, nobody that we know will see. And he says, still others would argue forgiveness. We have a loving God. He's slow to anger, quick to forgive. We'll just bow down this one time and then we'll ask his forgiveness. God is more understanding and forgiving than these Babylonians. You see all of these rationalizations that we could have come up with? What pressure they faced. It would have been easy. And the king gave them a second chance. Hey, you didn't bow down the first time. I'm going to give you one more chance. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O king, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so... Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. So they had the absolute assurance that God had the power to deliver them. Now, why were they so sure about that? Well, they were sure about it. They knew who God is. They knew that God is the creator of all things. They knew that God is the one who had called them to be his children. They had already seen what God is able to do. In the previous chapter, when the threat came of being torn from limb to limb, if they didn't give the interpretation of the dream of the king, they prayed and God answered. And God revealed the dream to Daniel. And they believed what Daniel said in his prayer in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20, that wisdom and power belong to God. So if God had delivered them before... He can certainly do it again. So there's the first question. Do we believe that God is able? Do we believe that God can do anything in our lives to deliver us from whatever we face? I think we need to say yes, don't we? If we believe the Bible, we'd say absolutely. We can have that assurance. Our God is able. And praise God for that. 
Second thing we notice, we face fiery trials, not only with the assurance that God is able, but with the confidence that God is willing to deliver us. Now, here it takes a little different step here. It's one thing to say that God is able to deliver us, right? There should be no question in our minds about that. But it's another thing to say that God will deliver us. How do we know for sure what God will do? Now, there are certain things we know from Scripture that God will do because He has said He will do it, right? Will God forgive us if we confess our sins? Absolutely, right? We have that assurance. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins and He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know that God will do that, right? Do we know that God will save us? Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, what? Shall be saved, right? We know that God will do that because He said He will do that. But there are other situations we face, especially the trials of life, where we don't know for sure what God is going to do. Because we don't know the mind of God, do we? Any of you understand the mind of God? And you can can tell me exactly what God is going to do in every situation you face? I don't see any hands. And if you do, I don't believe you. (laughs) We don't know. So why, then, in this situation, did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say that God is both able and He will deliver us from that fiery furnace? I don't know that I can answer that. You're probably wondering what the answer is. But let me offer a couple of suggestions. It seemed to make sense that God would deliver them because He had a purpose for their lives in Babylon. God was the one who sent them there. We saw that in chapter 1. God was the one who had given them wisdom and understanding. God was the one who had placed them in positions of leadership within the kingdom. And so it just seemed to make sense that if they were there because of God's purpose for their lives... That God was going to protect them and allow them to fulfill that purpose. Can I say that for sure? No. Perhaps that is the reason. A second reason it made sense that God was going to deliver them is because God would be glorified through the humbling of a proud king. A very proud king. And this appeared to be an unforgettable way to humble that king. Listen to what Nebuchadnezzar said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they refused to bow down the first time. I'm assuming it's a bit with a sarcastic voice. Is it true? (laughs) Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? No, if you're ready... At the moment you hear the sound of the horn and flute and lyre and trigon and so forth, all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made very well. But 
If you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And can't you just hear this last statement? And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Do you really think your God can deliver you out of my hands? There's no such God who can rescue you. No such God who can deliver you. How proud could he be? So the deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wasn't going to happen just for their protection alone, if it did. Their deliverance would bring glory to God by humbling the most powerful man in the world of that day. Now, this is a pattern that we see throughout Scripture, don't we? That God delivers His people in order to reveal His glory and to humble those who think they are God, like Nebuchadnezzar. Exodus 14, the crossing of the Red Sea. What did Pharaoh say when Moses came and said, let my people go? Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? I don't know the Lord and I'm not going to let your people go. That's like putting up your fist to God and saying, okay, let's, let's go at it. And God says, okay, let's go at it. And what happened? Chapter 14, verse 17, As for me, behold, I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they will go after them, and I will be honored through and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. When I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. So it seems to me that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had good reason to believe that God was willing to deliver them because their deliverance would bring glory and praise to God. This proud king would be humbled and the true God would receive glory. Nebuchadnezzar had sarcastically asked, What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? And at the end of the story, notice what he says in verse 29. He says, there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. (laughs) What a contrast. He was shown the power and majesty and glory of God. And that is one of the reasons why God delivers us in various ways. Not just for our own comfort, but for the glory and the praise of God. And maybe that's the way we ought to pray. Lord, if this brings you glory, would you deliver me? If this lifts lifts up your name, O God, would you deliver me? So they said God is able. And they said that God is willing. But the third thing they said really completes the picture. We need to see the whole picture here. We face fiery trials, thirdly, with the knowledge, and this is hard sometimes, with the knowledge that God may not, God may not deliver us. It obviously obviously takes faith to believe that God is willing to deliver us. But what if God has a different plan? 
What if God chooses not to respond to our situation in the way that we think He will or think He should? What do we do then? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego believed that God would deliver them. As finite human beings, however, they they couldn't be absolutely certain. Only God knew for sure what He was going to do, so we need to look at that third statement they made. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. And He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But then verse 18 says, But even if He does not... Catch that phrase. Even if he does not. Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. If you think about this third statement they made to the king, it's it's obvious where their focus was, isn't it? They were much more concerned about obedience to God Then they were about their own deliverance. They knew that God alone is to be worshipped and they weren't going to bow down to any other God. If it meant that they would be delivered, wonderful. And if not, so be it. They were not going to change. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the result was deliverance. When they were thrown into that fire, God miraculously spared their lives. Verse 24, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded, and he stood up in haste, and he said to his high officials, Wasn't there three men that we threw into the fire? seems to me there were three, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If my math is right, I'm paraphrasing, of course, I see four. And the form of the fourth one, he says, has the appearance of the son of the gods, as he worded it. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes near to the door of the furnace, and he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, he says, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's high officials gathered around them. Can you imagine that? Here come these guys out of this burning furnace. And they saw these men. And the text says the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Nor was the hair of their head singed. Nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. I would call that a miracle, right? The power and majesty and glory of God. Nebuchadnezzar responded, verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him. Violating the king's command, they yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. That was the crux of the matter, right? They were not going to serve or worship any god 
Not Nebuchadnezzar's God. No other God but their own. What an amazing conclusion to a situation that could have had a very different ending. By a miracle of God, their lives were spared. Now, we rejoice in this, right? We praise God for this. But we need to understand that it doesn't always end this way. I wish we could say it would always end this way. That whenever we face a fiery trial, God is able, God is willing, and the situation changes. And we say, praise God for that. But it doesn't always end that way. Hebrews chapter 11. It mentions Daniel. It mentions Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not by name. But by faith, these events occurred. Hebrews 11.32, And what more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, and here it is, quenched the power of fire. Escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead back to life, right? So all of these that the writer mentions, they conquered by faith. They were delivered. They they experienced a, a marvelous miracle of God. But then we come to the middle of verse 35. And notice how it changes. Others. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. So what does this passage tell us? Number one, we shouldn't expect that it's always going to turn out like it did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if that's what we think, what's going to happen then when it doesn't occur that way? I know what some will say, you didn't have enough faith, right? You didn't have enough faith. Well, there must be sin in your life. Sometimes it doesn't end like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't, what does Hebrews 11 tell us? We still have hope. We have a living hope. We have an eternal hope in Jesus. If Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have died in that fiery furnace, would they have been forsaken by God? No. No. Then we would say they were not saved from death. They were saved through death, right? Brought into the very presence of Jesus. Sometimes God delivers His people from death. Sometimes He delivers His people through death. (laughs) And after all, that's the greatest victory, isn't it? To be brought into the presence of Jesus. I remember a man in our church up in Cloquet. 
facing a major, major surgery. And the doctor said, the chances that you are going to make it through this, he said, they're not good. But we have no other choice. And I remember what he told his wife before he went into surgery. He said, Martha, I am a winner either way. If the Lord brings me through, wonderful. We have time to spend together as a family and as a married couple. If not, I still win because I will be brought into the presence of Jesus. That's the hope we have in Christ today. A winner either way. God may choose to deliver. Wonderful. He may not. Bring us to the presence of Jesus forevermore. Father, thank you. Thank you so much that you are able to deliver. And Lord, there are times when you will that to take place, and we praise you for that. But there are also times, Lord, when it may not be exactly what we would pray for or hope for. But Lord, still, we win when we rest in you. So Lord, use this word to encourage and strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.